this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeeda hamid your host for today the divorce rate in india is about 1.1% one of the lowest in the world census 2011 figures however show that the population that has separated for various reasons is almost triple the divorced number. On May 1st, the Supreme Court held that it could grant divorce by mutual consent and spare couples the misery of having to wait the usual period of 6 to 18 months. This was done under Article 142 of the Constitution, which gives the Supreme Court the power to use any means to render complete justice between parties. So what does this judgment mean for divorce laws in the country? Will it set a precedent for lower courts to do away with the mandatory period as well? Why did the court say that this would not be a matter of right but of discretion to be exercised with care and caution? We explore these questions and more with Mihira Sood, a lawyer at the Supreme Court and a visiting professor at the National Law University, Delhi. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast, Ms. Mihira Sood. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Ma'am, the Supreme Court judgment on May 1st, holding that Article 142 of the Constitution can be used to grant couples a divorce by mutual consent without the mandatory waiting period, has evoked a lot of discussions about divorce laws in the country. Could you explain this judgment to us? Yeah, so basically the judgment um, effectively did two things. One was that in cases of mutual consent divorces, the mandatory waiting period can be dispensed with if both parties agree and that's because the court recognized that if both parties wish to uh, waive that uh, waiting period um, then it may be better to do so rather than prolonging what might be a very unhappy situation and um, you know having a longer waiting period can also sometimes breed further resentment suspicion um, and it can even impede or delay a settlement that might otherwise have been achieved fairly quickly so keeping that in mind the court said that where there's mutual consent in both parties uh, you know it's called a no fault divorce uh, both parties are uh, seeking a divorce without making any allegations against each other then this waiting period can be dispensed with the second thing um, and more significant thing that the court did more significant because in practice many courts were dispensing with it even though it is not strictly permitted under the Hindu Marriage Act but uh, in practice many courts were dispensing with it looking at the facts and circumstances but the more significant thing um, that the court did was say that there is something called an irretrievable breakdown of marriage which is an idea that has been around for decades but has never you know been implemented in law by the legislature and that is the idea of a unilateral divorce that is one party wants it the other party may not even want it and that is sufficient uh, for a person to uh, to to seek a divorce without invoking any of the fault based grounds that exist in the hindu marriage act so earlier you could get a unilateral divorce um that is by approaching the court unilaterally um only on grounds of adultery cruelty uh, bigamy rape etc you know these specific grounds that are mentioned but now you can get a unilateral uh, you can seek a unilateral divorce without invoking any of these grounds or without any of these grounds being present in your case simply because you no longer wish to be married to that person 
so that's significant um because i think it's it's a major step in recognizing the autonomy of individuals within the institution of marriage and not just upholding the sanctity of the institution understanding that individuals may have their own you know desires their own rationale that may not necessarily make any sense to another person that may not find ground in any of the traditional fault based circumstances that we consider sufficient grounds for divorce but even without that a person can you know simply want out and the court said that look even though the legislature has not passed this though it has been pending in the legislature there is a bill proposed in 2010 and 2013 um nothing much has come of it it's been recommended by various law commissions over the decades to introduce this um but the court uh, said that you know despite that nothing has happened but we think that you know there is sufficient cause to exercise our unique power under article 142 which is a power unique to the supreme court um and you know we can do it under that so ma'am tell us a little bit about this fault based divorce system that you uh, were mentioning a little earlier the fact that if you want unilaterally to end your marriage up until now it has always been that some fault has to be assigned does this mean that getting a divorce in the, in this country has been extremely difficult for most people um it would be very difficult to answer that question without uh, sufficient data i mean to say most people because there are certainly plenty of cases that do fall in the category of one of the fault based grounds that are already there and there are plenty of cases that come under mutual consent so to say that you know most of the cases is you were not able to get a divorce i think that would be very difficult to answer without data but certainly there were enough um there 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 i mean anecdotally there are plenty of cases and the court itself mentioned that we've seen time and again requests for this and we feel it's sufficient to say that this should be included as a ground it's not so much the difficulty of getting divorce unless of course the other party is very resistant and you know pulls out every trick in the book to block it uh, and things like that but it's also you know the aftermath of divorce many times people don't seek divorce uh because they fear losing custody of their children or they fear they may not get a sufficient maintenance amount and things like that so it's it's more of the aftermath of divorce that that um scares people off um getting a divorce when they would otherwise want one rather than the difficulty of getting a divorce itself you said that several law commissions had recommended that this provision of uh, irretrievable breakdown of marriage and one party being able to get a divorce be considered in law why has this not yet happened well i think there are two reasons for it one as i mentioned earlier is the more the symbolic idea of marriage and that it is not something that should be walked away from simply on the whims of one party when the other party is not necessarily at fault you know mutual consent is one thing but the other party not being at fault and not wanting a divorce then then why should you just be able to walk away that was one you know that marriage has to mean something you know more more than that and should be see you know treated as a more stable institution than you know just on the whims of one person and the other more um, practical reason was that you know it's something that many women's rights experts also have cautioned against 
because it was seen as something that could be misused in a similar way that, you know, the, the kind of concerns that were there about triple talaq before it became outlawed. You know, that if, if men can just walk away uh, unilaterally, no fault of the woman, then where does that leave us socially and economically? Uh, because the fact remains that, uh, you know, for much of the country, um, it's not that easy to uh, deal with the aftermath of a divorce, particularly for women and children. Uh, social acceptance, uh, ability to remarry, uh, and, uh, you know, economic security, these are very real concerns. Um, and that's also something that has weighed with the legislature, that has weighed with women's rights experts. Many stakeholders have made similar such submissions. So, and that's something that really does need to be safeguarded against. I mean, the difference here is, of course, that you're not unilaterally getting a divorce. You're only unilaterally approaching the court. So there is some inbuilt safeguard, but we need to have a clear common consensus among courts of the country um, as to what is a sufficient maintenance amount, uh, what are the standards to, uh, you know, award custody and, you know, those, the aftermath of the divorce. Talk to us a little bit more about the maintenance and custody uh, laws, ma'am, and how that plays out in general after the divorce. Um, it's not just after, it's during the divorce as well. You know, it becomes a negotiating tactic, you know, and the thing is maintenance amounts have traditionally been uh, very low in the country for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, legislatively, in terms of the, the, the rules, they've not been updated as to what is a standard amount or we rely on precedent that is very, very old. Uh, and that's also a concern because, you know, you rely on precedent. It's not going to take into account, uh, you know, inflation and costs of living. And then you have different costs of living in different parts of the country. Uh, it doesn't take into account the diversity of, uh, you know, the people seeking divorce, their economic circumstances. And the, I mean, the general idea should be that, you know, it should be your maintenance amount should be something that allows you to live in a similar lifestyle and a similar standard of living as you were prior to the divorce. You know, that is something that would then take into account these individual particularities. But that doesn't always happen, and judges themselves are also not always equipped to um, ascertain what would be a proper amount in different situations. So there's a lot of reasons, and um, there's also a lot of judgment, uh, like moral judgment, for instance, if it's a fault-based divorce or even if, you know, without being proved, certain allegations are made against either party, there are certain judgments that may hamper the amount of maintenance that a person, that a judge thinks that a person should receive or deserves in light of, you know, her conduct or things like that. So those things also play a role. It's not that they don't. When it comes to child custody? Yeah, so in child custody, again, things are... Um, a little bit, I mean, there are certain standards in terms of, okay, if the child is very young, then uh, then ordinarily custody would reside with the mother. Um, older children, the courts tend to adopt a gender-based approach sometimes, or, you know, they, they talk to the child at times, but not always does it, it doesn't always work because, you know, you're not taking into account that the child may be tutored or the child may be influenced by the person they're living with at that moment 
or that if you have a very long um, interim custody arrangement, then that influences the final outcome because then you don't, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling, um, you know, sort of uh, situation uh, where, you know, because in the interim, uh, during the proceedings, you've awarded custody to one parent, then later on, you don't want to disturb it because that's not in the best interest of the child. So the delays also play a role in that. Uh, and, that and that's a very strong reason to not, uh, to, you know, to to have these proceedings as quickly as possible. Um, because otherwise you're creating a, you know, a self-fulfilling kind of situation. Um, so all of these things uh, play out. And there again, there are certain moral judgments that are made. And, you know, if I may say so, women frequently get the short end of the stick. If women are working, then, you know, very often it's felt that they don't have time to give the child. If women are not working, then it's, oh, they can't provide for the child. So, you know, either which way women uh, have a rough time. And when men are working, then it's considered, you know, very often you see so many cases where it's okay, his mother is there, his sister is there, he can hire a nanny. But for, you know, women to do that, that's, you know, poor, poor parenting, poor mothering. So sexist attitudes prevail. Sexist attitudes, I think, I think the double standards in terms of the double standards that are applied, mothers vis-a-vis -vis fathers, are very, very real in court and out of it. You know, it's just nothing that, you know, a mother does is seen as enough, as a, whereas the bar is set very low. And that plays out in court. You do see that in judgments as well. And it plays out in the, the kind of lawyering that happens. You know, I think an important point to mention here is that the kind of lawyering can be so abrasive and so aggressive sometimes that very often women back down because they don't want their children to be exposed to that. That really sounds rough. It is, it is very rough. It is. And, the, you know, I think more than the courts and the, more than the, the judges, I mean, that, that's, that's a concern. But the lawyering can get very, very rough. And again, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy um, in that, you know, you make the lawyering so rough that very often it is the mothers who in the best interest of the child will say, you know what, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, subject you to this anymore. So would you say then, then that there's a case for the overhaul of the entire system in terms of stricter and better and fairer custody laws and maintenance regulations as well? Yeah, custody and maintenance is a really big one. And, you know, this is also something that I see a lot. And, you know, we have there's so much concern expressed in society, in public discourse about, you know, false cases of, you know, dowry complaints and cruelty complaints. Dowry harassment. And misuse of, uh, you know, these kind of legislations. And what I have seen uh, very often, I have seen cases where these complaints are made where, then not necessarily based in fact. It's not that I haven't. But what I've seen is that these women are advised to do so by their lawyers because it is the only way to bring the other side to the negotiating table and to apply some pressure for a fairer maintenance settlement, better child support, or a fairer child custody agreement or a better, you know, visitation agreement. Um, and without that, women often don't have anything to bargain with. And that's the reason. So if you want to fix this false complaint business, which 
I, I don't know if it is as widespread as the concerns, uh, you know, about surrounding it make it seem like. But to whatever extent it's there, if you want to fix it, then you have to fix maintenance and custody and make the process fairer and easier for women. Because otherwise they do feel and they're advised by their lawyers um, that they need something to bring the other side to the bargaining table. Going back to the um, Supreme Court judgment for a bit, ma'am, what sort of precedent will this set for lower codes and how will this potentially play out? That's a very interesting question because the power under Article 142 is available only to the Supreme Court. So whether or not this can actually be used by the lower courts, uh, how many cases are actually going to get to the Supreme Court? Are they going to all get there by way of special leave petition or transfer petition? Are you going to file a transfer petition simply because Supreme Court is the only one that can grant irretrievable breakdown, you know, divorce? Uh, that's something that needs to be answered. The judgment is not very clear um, because the power under Article 142 is a unique power available only to the Supreme Court, not to any other court in the country. But does this mean that going by that judgment, lower courts could potentially wave off the waiting period, as you said, is anyway happening? It's happening on a case-by-case -case basis, but it's not strictly uh, un as it should be under the law, under the statute. Um, but uh, that is something that is still happening, whether lower courts can grant a unilateral no-fault divorce uh, is something that really, I mean, it's, a, it's an intriguing question and probably one that will be only answered in a subsequent case where, say, a couple approaches, a person approaches one of the lower courts and then the issue has to be decided by the Supreme Court again or by the legislature if they, in the meantime, amend the law to bring this in. Because right now, the answer to that is not at all clear. Going back to the Supreme Court judgment, ma'am, the court also said that this was not going to be a matter of right, but a matter of discretion to be exercised with great care and caution. We spoke a little earlier about how uh, women in this country are in general more financially disadvantaged than men. Does this mean that in every case of uh, divorce due to irretrievable breakdown of marriage, it has to be decided on a case-to-case -case individual basis? Yes, that's absolutely what it means. Uh, there is no precedent um, for the kind of financial arrangement that would be worked out or other distribution of assets uh, or custody that would be worked out in such cases. Um, it is uh, completely on an individual case-by-case -case basis. And, uh, you know, so far it seems case-by-case -case basis at the discretion of the Supreme Court and not any other court. But that, as I said, is something um, that has to be clarified, perhaps in a subsequent judgment or by the legislature, how it's going to work and whether every such case has to travel all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, that's that's kind of open right now. Right. While this judgment deals with Hindu personal law, is there a case for reforms to be made in the divorce reg regulations of other personal laws as well? Yes. I think that's too much of a political hot potato for the legislature or the judiciary to want to go into right now, I think we got a, a little uh, insight even when the Supreme Court Constitution bench was hearing the marriage equality case that they were fairly reluctant to go into questions of personal law 
um and i think it's a sensitive topic even the marriage uh, amendment bill that was passed in 2013 you know incorporating irretrievable breakdown and dispensing with the waiting period had proposed amendments to the hindu marriage act and the special marriage act but not to any of the other personal laws so um personally i do agree that there is scope for reform but when it should happen how it should happen by whom it should happen these are very very sensitive questions and i don't think anybody wants to go there right now right last question ma'am um while india's divorce rate is really low around 1.1% only and mostly concentrated in urban localities uh the census numbers reveal even though they're quite outdated now because it's census census 2011 that the population that is separated is almost triple that of the divorced number so there's this point to the fact that perhaps more people want to seek divorces in the country so again that's a little difficult to answer without data because um divorce means very different things for different people socially uh financially emotionally it would be very difficult to presume from that that everybody would get a divorce at legal proceedings or the maintenance aspect uh was easier it may just be that they prefer to live separately rather than get a legal divorce however what we can do and what we can advocate for is that the law should not be a barrier and legal proceedings and judicial proceedings and outcomes of those proceedings fear of those outcomes should not be a barrier to people seeking what they want in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon